I'm lead pastor Noel Petras, and welcome to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a home in the family of God, or feel called to be a part of the kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 9:30 a.m. in the Veterans Memorial Building at 324 North Kawea Avenue. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or find us on social media. Thanks for listening. So the real reason we uh, stand up so often is because, as I've heard from some of you, these new seats are a little bit harder than the good old-fashioned American seats that we were used to, right? So anyways, in order to fix the seat issue, um, we've, I've got a solution. We're going to be starting um, a little fundraising project. You go to the next slide, please, Oscar. Um, we've got some um, Extra Valley Church branded um, seat cushions um, f- for y'all. So I'll get, the, I'll get you guys the link, and, and you can purchase your own seat cushion um, and be ready for next week. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I was asking a lot of you, you know, for feedback, like, what do you think of the new building? And uh, the most common response I got was, the, the chairs are really hard, Pastor Noel. The chairs are really hard. And I thought, you know, after a while, I started to realize how passive-aggressive y'all are. Like, no one could say your sermon was too long, but everyone was noticing the, the hardness of the seats. So, anyway... Anyway, that's a good one. We'll, we'll, I don't know, we'll work on that. Um, you know, speaking of hard things, uh, today uh, we come to another hard teaching of Jesus. We've been plowing through the book of Matthew with a, with a few sidetracks, but uh, chapter 19 has some hard things to say. And Jesus is talking a lot about marriage in chapter 19, and uh, now he starts talking about our money. Marriage and money, two really hard things that Jesus is going to have some high standards for. And I just wanted to uh, remind us, you know, just as we're sitting on hard seats this morning, that uh, narrow is the road that leads to life, is it not? Uh, the road that leads to life is often windy and bumpy. Uh, this certainly isn't easy street, the business of following Jesus. So uh, we've gotten a tad bit out of order. You may remember, if your memory serves you well enough, it was like a month ago at least that Steve Whitmer came and shared on uh, Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19 about children. So we got a little bit out of order, but Jesus has been talking about marriage. He's been talking about uh, sex, divorce, celibacy, and uh, now we're going to talk a little bit about money. Marriage and money, two great church growth messages. Uh, not exactly. So anyways, if, if, you, if you haven't been offended in any of the last few weeks, well, maybe today's your chance to take offense at the teachings of Jesus. I was, I was reminded that Jesus' teachings offend all of us. None of us can hide from the teachings of Jesus. And while they offend us, they convict our hearts. And like Andy shared... It's the kindness of God to convict our hearts and bring us to the way, 
that is truly life. And that's what we're after. So even in the hard things, we trust that Jesus asks us to do the hard things, not because he's mean or overly strict, not because he's some sort of cosmic cop or, or the strict dad that's enforcing all the rules all the time, not because he's some sort of Karen, as the kids call them these days. The hard things are the good things. I, I did consider, well, should I preach a Father's Day message? I'm not going to. The women got their special day, but dads, you're just going to get a passage on money. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think that there's, don't, don't, don't worry, there's, a, there's an application for us fathers today, even in this passage on money. Uh, you know, and, and, and as we learned, you know, in, in Matthew 19, um, I mean, this passage or this section has really been about how to have a healthy home in a lot of ways. You know, how do we have a healthy home? And how many of you know that how we handle our money is one of the primary keys to having a healthy home. I, I know that the statistics say that money is the number one conflict in marriage. It's the number one thing that comes up over and over again. And so here we go. We're, we're talking about money. And, and guys, specifically to you this morning, on Father's Day, uh, this is what I would say to you. And I, I'm not going to back down from this. I'm just going to say it. Your relationship, men, with money will be a defining characteristic of your fatherhood. The way you handle money, the way you potentially worship money and success and career will be a defining characteristic of the type of father and husband you will be. Look, you, you, you don't get to ma make the chase after money and material possessions the aim of your life. Not if you want to have life. Not if you want to be the kind of father that I know that you want to be. You don't get to do this under the guise of providing for your family. In this story, we, we don't find a, a rich young woman coming to Jesus, asking questions about how do we inherit eternal life. We find a rich young man coming to Jesus. And so, men, I think for us today, and I could go hard, I could go strong, because I know you can take it, and because I guess I'm a father as well, and so I'm speaking to myself, but what we do with our money, men, the way we orient our lives around the making of money is a big deal. Look, your wife and your kids, they don't need new clothes or a nicer house as, they mu as much as they need a dad committed to lay it all down and follow Jesus. And we sometimes, men, we fall into this trap. Oh, why are you working so hard? Well, I, I took more hours just to provide for my family. You hear it over and over and over again, and I'm just here to challenge you this morning. Sometimes we do this under the guise of providing for our family, when all the while what we're chasing is wealth, materialism, or maybe it's success and achievement. And these things don't lead to life. They'll lead to destruction in your own life and in the life of your family. And so I'm here to say, men, yes, provision is a thing. Provision is a thing. And I can also speak confidently because I know that we've got a room full here of dads who are providing for their families. You're, you're, doing a, you're doing the provision thing, but something more is asked for you. I would suggest that in 2023 America, the bigger risk for most of us as fathers would be the temptation to store up earthly treasure rather than eternal treasure. 
to store up treasures that will someday rot and fade away at the expense of the things that will never fade away. And I'm here to beg and plead with you to store up your treasures in heaven. So as we come to this passage this morning, maybe it is a Father's Day passage. Maybe it is. You know, my, uh, my dad died not too long ago. It still feels super close, but it was in 2018 that my dad died. And I was, um, I was thinking about him this week, you know. Uh, I found that Mother's Day and Father's Day are, are kind of hard without your mother and your father. And uh, I remember a conversation um, I had with them back in 2006, I think. Uh, I remember vividly driving in the car. I was a married man, had just had a kid. And uh, my dad was like an expert on using car rides and seat belts to pin me down into life's like most important <laughs> conversations. <laughs> I'm laughing and crying. And anyways, my dad told me that, uh, I don't know what we were talking about, but my dad told me that he was praying that great financial calamity would come upon our nation. I was like, dad, like, geez, like lighten up a little bit, you know, like you're supposed to be praying for like the opposite. You know, like, God bless America, right? Like, isn't that what we're supposed to be praying for, Dad? But no, my dad was praying that great financial calamity would come on our country. And, and, and Dad would go on to say that, that he felt like money had become the God our country worshipped. And that, uh, that, that disordered worship was a sure way to destruction. And so he was praying that God would bring down our idols he would bring down the thing that he saw our country flocking to. I've, I've, also, I've often remarked, you know, like after 2006, we were at the height of the housing boom, like a time of great prosperity for, my country, or for our country, sorry. And I don't know if it was just my dad's prayers, but we certainly saw a great recession come in those uh, years after that, a great uh, collapse. And it reminded me of 1 Timothy 6, where it says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And if we're not careful, money can entrap us. And, and so, man, I, I could give you, if I could give you one piece of advice on Father's Day. Here's my Father's Day message, men. And it's just the start of my sermon. It'd just be this. Make your life's aim not to pursue wealth, but to pursue godliness. So here we go. This teaching is hard. Like I've said, it's, it's, it's not hard to understand. It's just really hard to do. And I think the character, the main character in the story, uh, proves that very well for us. Um, in this teaching, we're going to see, uh, and my three points would be that we're going to see the ruler's partial righteousness. We're going to see the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And thirdly, we're going to see the privilege or the reward of righteous living that's promised to all disciples who follow Jesus' commandments. So let's take a look. Matthew 19, verse 16, we'll go through verse by verse. Let's take a look first at the ruler's partial righteousness. Verse 16, it says, just then, so imagine Jesus had been patting children on the head, elevating their position, and just then, it says, a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? 
One thing we've learned in the book of Matthew is that how these people referred to Jesus is one of the first things that we can learn about their posture. And what does this man call Jesus here? Teacher. And is he a teacher? Yes, he is a teacher. He's a good teacher. In Mark and Luke, we see parallel accounts of this same story, and the the term good teacher is used. But is Jesus just a teacher? No. And as, as long as we see him only as teacher and not as Lord, we won't be able to step into the narrow road that leads to life. And so this man comes up. He says, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Again, this guy is male. We, we find that out. In verse 20, we find that he's young. In verse 22, we see he's wealthy. He had great wealth. And if we look at, at the parallel account in Luke 18, it mentions that he's a ruler. So this guy had maleness, which was a really important status thing in ancient culture in particular. But even today in our culture, there's still remnants of male privilege, for sure. I'm not trying to get woke. Don't, don't throw anything at me. I think you understand what I'm saying, right? This guy's young, right? Being young, male, rich, and powerful. This guy had it all. In the world's eyes, this guy had it all, not just wealth. He's made it. He's arrived. He's kind of a big deal, it would seem. I mean, to be young and powerful and rich, that's like pretty impressive. It's one thing to be old and rich, but to be young and rich is pretty impressive. And and then he seems to be asking the right questions, does he not? Like, you know, I'm a a parent, you know, and if Gunnar came up to me and was like, Dad, what thing must I do in order to inherit eternal life? I'd be like, all right, this guy's been paying attention. He's asking the right questions. But we learn from uh, Jesus' response that there's something a little bit off about the questions that this young man is asking. And so Jesus replies in verse 17, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. See, it would seem that this man, secure in his status in society, confident in his own merits, and his ability to achieve eternal life through his own performance, through his own deeds, through his own doing— It seems like he viewed eternal life as something to be achieved. Notice the words he uses. What must I do in order to get eternal life? This man was focused on doing and getting. John Calvin says it this way. He does not ask simply how he can attain to life, but what good thing he must do to acquire it. He's asking questions about doing and getting. It's almost as if to him, eternal life was just another accomplishment to add onto his already pretty accomplished resume. So Jesus tells him that if you're asking about the good thing you must do, you're asking the wrong question. Why? Because there's only one who is good. Jesus, of course, referring to the Father, the truly righteous one, is certainly communicating that there's not enough goodness that you could actually do to be good enough. It reminds me of Paul's words in Romans 3. Paul said, no one is righteous, not even one. There is only one who is good, Jesus says, our Father in heaven. Hey, that's good news for us this morning. I think I said it already. If you had a bad dad or you feel like a bad dad, 
I give you the assurance that there is one good dad, the ultimately good dad, our Father in heaven. And I, and I would want to point you to him this morning. Because look, unless we have a righteousness outside of ourself, outside of our own performance, we cannot inherit eternal life. There is only one who is good. So the man, uh, not yet convinced that eternal life is uh, beyond the reach of his achievement. And so he, he asks a follow-up question. He heard Jesus say that he needed to follow the commandments. And so he said, well, which ones? To which Jesus replies, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. That's a good Father's Day passage. And love your neighbor as yourself. Anyone a little uncomfortable with all the commands Jesus is bringing at this time? You know, sometimes in Scripture, and I've found particularly in the book of Matthew, um, this real tension between commandment-keeping, obedience, doing the things Jesus teaches us to do, and then on the other side, grace. The knowledge that we can't get it all right, we'll never get it all right, but we know the one who has and there's this tension that exists between commandment-keeping and grace. This uh, theologian, Vincent Taylor, says, uh, he says it this way, to those who feel secure, Jesus gives the law. To the contrite, Jesus gives the gospel, the good news that we're saved by grace. And so Jesus encountered by this rich man who's somewhat puffed up, it would seem, about his accomplishments, about his ability to achieve the things needed, secure in his law-keeping, Jesus gives this man more law. Have you really done it all? To those contrite, repentant, Jesus gives the gospel of grace. But, you know, if we're honest, I think commandment-keeping has gone a bit by the wayside. You know, we used to worship in churches that were more prim and proper. You, you had a, more emphasis on doing the right things. I would say, you could, you could feel free to disagree with me, but the church I grew up in was a little bit more based on commandment keeping. And I think in, in some ways, beautifully, we've, we've really embraced God's grace. And that's been good in ways, but bad in, other, in others. And I, I feel at times that we've become gluttons of like a cheap grace, is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it. A cheap grace that never requires anything of us. And here Jesus says, to this rich young ruler, you want to inherit eternal life? Well, do the things that I've commanded you to do. And look, this can feel oppressive. It can feel maybe even like sometimes I've heard people call like commandment keeping legalistic. But look, the simplest way to a better life is to do what God's commanded. Imagine a world with uh, less stealing. Imagine a world with less murder. Imagine a world with less adultery, with less lying. Imagine a world that was more generous, less coveting. You get what I'm saying? The commandments of Jesus are always for our good. The commandments of the Old Testament are always for our good. Dennis Nineham, uh, another theologian, um, he says it this way. He says, a sincere effort to obey the declared will of God is a basic element in Christian discipleship, which no other element can ever render superfluous. <clears throat> that was a fancy word, maybe the fanciest word I've ever said on stage. I'm going to say it again. Sur no, I'm not. 
superfluous. <clears throat> Look, you've heard it said, and, and God forbid, maybe I've said this. You've heard it said that it's, it's, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Anybody ever heard that? Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Maybe you've heard it said, it's not about the rules, it's about a relationship with God. I think I've said that once or twice, probably with this mic on. But what relationship exists without implicit rules? We've been talking about marriage quite a bit. Try this one on for size. Imagine a marriage relationship without rules, like fidelity, provision, love. Isn't it necessary that a good relationship would demand that you commit to some certain rules, some commandment keeping, if you will? So maybe we've thrown out the, ba uh, the baby with the bathwater if we've thrown out rules in pursuit of a relationship with God. One of the things Jesus is teaching this man is that it takes both. If you want to have a relationship with God the Father, there's some rules that you need to follow. If the rules get broken, the relationship gets broken. So discipleship to Jesus, it doesn't, it doesn't lead us away from God's commands. It actually leads us towards God's commands. The Apostle Paul talks about this. If, you, if you've been redeemed, if you've made Jesus your Lord, if you've experienced his grace in a transformative way, the natural byproduct is a different way of living. You've been made new creations, Paul says. The desires of your flesh, the desires of my flesh, have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I that live, but he that lives in me. There's transformation that takes place when we've experienced the grace of Jesus. So rule-keeping and relationship are not mutually exclusive. But in the end, our commandment-keeping our ability to follow the rules, just like this ruler's ability to follow the rules, they, they have their own endpoint. They're just not enough. Verse 20, we learn about the perfect righteousness of Jesus. In verse 20, the ruler says, All these commands I have kept. What do I still lack? I've done all this. What do I still lack? Remember his original question. He wants to inherit eternal life. Can you hear it in the question? The man thinks he's done enough. Certainly, I followed the rules really, really, really well. What else could I possibly lack? The man says to Jesus. And the question seems sincere. What do I still lack? Again, couldn't one ask worse questions? Jesus, what do I still lack in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers in verse 21, if you want to be perfect... Dang, perfect. I feel like there's some bumper stick stickers out there that say something like, Christians aren't perfect, but they know the one who is. But Jesus' standard is perfection for this young ruler. Dang, Jesus. This is where the teaching gets really hard. So if you want to be perfect, if you want to be holy, would be another way to say it. If you want to be fully mature, go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, a few things about Jesus' response here. And listen up. This is the meat of Jesus' 
teaching in this passage. Number one, what does Jesus mean when he says perfect? Well, like I already said, he means mature. He means holy. Essentially, Jesus is saying, if you want to lack nothing, there's something yet for you to do. I know you think you've kept the commandments, but you haven't perfectly kept all my commandments. In fact, there's this one thing that you're holding on to that's a really big deal. And what is that one thing? The one thing that he's holding on to is his possessions, his wealth. And so Jesus tells him, you need to go sell all your possessions and give the proceeds to the poor. This would seem to be the answer. The man asked the question, Jesus, what do I need to do in order to get eternal life? And Jesus, in a bit of a roundabout way, but more direct than Jesus has been elsewhere, says this is what you need to do. You need to sell all that you own and give the proceeds to the poor. Now notice the second thing here. Jesus does not instruct him to give away his possessions. He doesn't just say, hey, give everything you own to the poor. He says to sell. Sell. So like, take back income. So the guy's not required at first to give away all his income. He's actually required to liquidate his possessions and turn it into income. Do you see what's happening here? This man is going to sell his possessions. He's going to have more money than he ever had. He tells him to sell. See, Jesus recognizes the value of what the man possesses. His, uh, his instruction is not to squander his wealth. He doesn't say burn it all down. It's actually to reinvest his wealth. The instruction of Jesus is not to get rid of your wealth, but to reinvest your wealth by redistributing it to others. <clears throat> Look, money's not a bad thing. If it were, Jesus would say, burn it all down. But instead, he says to sell it. People need to make money. Complete poverty is not the way to thrive. So money is just a resource, is what Jesus is saying. But you need to redirect the way that you're using this resource. You need to reinvest your greatest resource. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the former Bulldog, Derek Carr, He's quarterback for the Raiders. Any Raider fans in here? He was, I said, Gunner. He was the quarterback for the Raiders. <laughs> He's now the quarterback for the New Orleans Saints. And the man is a saint. When Derek Carr signed his big contract, his first really big contract in NFL, I still remember the press conference because I got to coach against Derek Carr in, um, in high school, um, when he was in high school. Um, he, he, the th I'll never forget the thing he said to the media when they asked him about his big contract. What he said was that, look, all this money is going to be used to bless other people. And he said, I believe God's given me all this money so that I could give it away to other people who have less. It was powerful. I was like, dang, that's a good dude right there. And, and then I wondered, is he really going to do that or is he just saying that he's going to do it? But this, I believe, is what Jesus is asking this man to do. Look, I've given you great wealth, but the reason why I've given it is not for you to have it just for yourself, not for you to hoard it. It's a resource to be used. Look, we're a rich church. You may not feel rich this morning, but every single one of us, I can almost guarantee, is in the world's top 1% of income. We're a rich church. God's given us resources for a reason. What are we going to do with the money that we have? He's given us a resource. He's given us a gift. So God's not against having money. 
But notice how the story ends, verse 22. When the young man heard this, again, he, he just got the answer that he was looking for. He seemed really eager to know, how, how can I obtain eternal life? But when the young man heard this, it says in verse 22, he went away sad because he had great wealth. The story evidently is not a success story. As a preacher, I take great solace in knowing that even, even Jesus' teaching was not always responded to or received. Here, Jesus tells him exactly what he was asking for. He gave him the answer. Look, this is what you need to do. If you want eternal life, there's one thing that you need to do. And yet the story doesn't end with the man saying, sure thing, and going and doing it joyfully. Instead, he goes home brokenhearted. It says sad. And, and the sad, it's not, he didn't go away angry. He didn't go away, like, in disagreement. Well, ah, I don't agree with Jesus. He went away sad because he knew that he could not do what Jesus was asking him to do. And it seems, I would suggest, that he knew that what Jesus was asking him to do would actually lead to life. But it was the one thing that he was not willing to part with. It says, because he had great wealth. Look, Jesus isn't against having money. He's against money having you. He's against money having us. And I'm here to tell you that whether you think you're poor or you think that you're rich, your money can have you. Or your lack of money can have you. This man knows what's required of him. He got the answer to the test. And he walked away sad. He, he, he's, not, he's able... He's able to understand the teachings of Jesus. Sometimes the things in Scripture, there are occasionally things in Scripture that are difficult to understand. Like there, there's like a knowledge issue that can get in the way of us doing what Jesus has called us to do. That is not the problem here. This is not hard for the man to understand. It's hard for him to actually do. He seems to understand it perfectly well, and yet he walks away. See, knowledge isn't our only problem. This man is unable to give up the life he's built in order to have eternal life. Have you seen uh, Lord of the Rings? I'm not a big sci-fi guy. I, I did not read the books. I think I've seen the movie. But there's this character, Schmeagel, I think is how you say his name. I think he was Gollum and he became Schmeagel. Is that right, Jeremy? Opposite. He was Schmeagel. He became Gollum. Okay. Like... The, the depiction of what happens to the character in the movie is like, man, he has to have that precious ring. And he's willing to suffer all kinds of destruction to his life in order to have it, right? The character goes from a healthy hobbit, right, to one that's just like riddled with poverty. This is what it's like when we hold on to our wealth. We can't let go of that which is precious to us. We, we're unwilling at times. This ruler was unwilling to let go of the thing he needed to let go of in order to actually have life. And when we do that, we actually choose our own destruction. And so this ruler turns away sad. And so Jesus now turns to his disciples. And this is a great little section here where we get to see Jesus who has this encounter with another person, and now he's going to turn to his disciples and teach a lesson 
to them. So here's the dialogue between he and his disciples. It says in verse 23, Jesus then said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, historically, and and you could just nod your head if you're tracking with me here, but historically, we've been resistant to take this teaching of Jesus literally and seriously, right? Uh, We've said things like, well, this story is just for this particular man, right? Jesus, he knew this guy needed to unload his wealth. But me, ah, I got my wealth rightly ordered. It doesn't mean the same thing for me. We've done that historically. And this is where I would remind you again, I'm going to give you another statistic. If you make more than $34,000 a year, you, in, you are in the world's 1%, the world's top 1%, the 99th percentile of income. $34,000 a year is just a bit over minimum wage. Most of us are making that. We are rich. This is a rich church. Is this particular message just for the rich young ruler? Maybe, maybe not. I think there's something for us here today. We live in the richest country in the world. Can we still say that? I think we can still say that. You get, what, you get where I'm going with this. I think this, this passage is not just, oh, just for this one guy. I think we should take very seriously. And I think if we look back at the, at the history of the early church, I think they took very seriously Jesus' command to give away, to give to the poor, to give to the needy. This is really challenging, if we're going to be honest. You know, and some, some have used other excuses. Have you heard this one? I'm a pastor's kid. You know, I grew up in a Christian subculture, so I know all these little things that we've done with Scripture uh, over the years. Have you heard this one? Oh, the, the camel through the eye of a needle. That's not like a really large animal into a hole that could never happen. That's actually, there was a gate in Jerusalem. Has anyone ever heard this before? Ah, oh, no, that's not what it means. There, there's a gate in Jerusalem, in ancient Jerusalem, and the camel, would, in order to get through the gate, would have to bend down really low, and you'd have to waddle the camel through. So it was possible, it was just really hard. That's what some of us have said about this passage. Why? Because we want to hold on to our money. We don't want to let go. And so we're resistant. I, I'm here to tell you there's, there's no evidence that such a gate existed. And uh, am I a scholar? No. But I, 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 there's literally a, a like, um, what do they call that when you're uh, a published research paper? There's a published research paper that you can find on the internet that shows there is no evidence for such a gate. So Jesus literally means to be rich and enter the kingdom of heaven is impossible. And how, how, what's another way that we can know he literally means it? Look at verse 26, 25, and 26. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. Right? Jaw dropped. Mic dropped. And they asked, well then who can be saved? Doesn't that sound like some people who just heard Jesus say, if you're rich, it's impossible to get into the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 26, Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So forget this idea about a silly little gate that a camel has to 
kneel down to get through. I think Jesus' teaching is to be taken seriously. I think Jesus' teaching here is literally true for us. If we hold on to our wealth, it's impossible for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples are like, well, then who can be saved? We've all held on to our wealth. I think we should take it that way. I think, again, like we are the rich. You can't just point at the rich young ruler. Because when you point at him, there's like three fingers aiming back at you. And this is probably the order that we should get this in, right? Three at us, one the other direction. But here's the good news this morning that while this is impossible with man, there is someone that can make this possible. And Jesus' intent in this conversation with this ruler and with his disciples is to lead them to the only one who is good. There is no gate called the eye of the needle, but there is one who is good, who is righteous, and who sent his son so that we could have a way to relationship. Even though we could not follow all the rules, Jesus followed all the rules, and he died in our place for our sins, atoning for all the ways that we failed. The life of faith in Jesus is a life of laying down everything, everything. It's, it's losing the life we think we wanted in order to gain the true life that Jesus came to bring. A life in which God's grace makes possible the impossible. This is why we worship. This is why we raise our hands, why we sometimes shout and get excited, why we're moved to emotion at what God has done. Because the impossible has been made possible, not by our own efforts, but by Jesus' efforts. So now Peter has a realization, and he, he starts asking about rewards. Verse 27, we'll see the privilege of righteousness in the next four verses. Peter answered him, well, we, us disciples, the twelve, have left everything to follow you. That's Peter's realization. Wait, we did it. What then will there be for us? It's sort of silly sounding to me. I, um, I, would, I would expect that Jesus would chastise Peter. Like, Peter, it's not all about what you're going to get, man. And like, I know you think you did a lot, but you still got, remember that time you denied me? Oh, that was three times. You know, I mean, you know what I'm saying. Peter's a great depiction of how we can be his disciples, huh? When we think we've got it, we're like, hey, I got it. Where's the reward? Where's my piece of candy? It's funny because in, in this culture of like uh, rewarding kids for doing things that they should be doing already at school, Peter was like needing positive behavior instruction, whatever they call that new method for discipline in schools. Anyways, that's a sidetrack. So you'd expect Jesus to say, now, now, Peter, it's not about what you can get. You should do this just because it's the right thing to do. But is that what Jesus says? No, that's not what Jesus says. Verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, the end times, when Jesus comes again to redeem the world once and for all, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. Remember, the Son of Man is language used for Jesus. You who have followed me will also sit 
on thrones. Twelve of them. And you'll judge the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Look, uh, there's a prevalent gospel, particularly in American culture, but we are transmitting it to the rest of the world. It's called the prosperity gospel. This teaching says that if you do good, you get good. It's kind of like the Hindus call karma, right? You get what you deserve. This is the prosperity gospel. It's the idea that if you do good, you get good. And, and it's so prevalent, and it is heretical, because we know that it doesn't always go good for us, even when we do good, at least not here on this earth. But it's, but it's so prevalent that we're kind of uneasy with the idea of rewards in a good mainline evangelical church where we believe the Bible. We're, we're kind of uneasy with the idea of rewards at times. Anyone ever had a parent? Well, why? Because I said so. Because it's the right thing to do. Even that, that sounds very, like, you know, ethical. Because it's the right thing to do. You just grin and bear it because it's the right thing to do. That is not what Jesus teaches this man. There's rewards. Jesus is not anti-reward. He's anti-earning, but he's not anti-reward. Freddie B., the scholar I've been following, Frederick Dale Bruner, he says this. He says, Jesus does not call us to a mystic nothingness. He doesn't call us to an unrewarded poverty or even to a virtue for its own sake. He calls us to transfer investments and to expect dividends. Transfer your investments. You're investing in the wrong category. If you would stop investing in earthly treasure and lay up for yourself treasures in heaven look at the privilege you could have thrones next to the son of man in eternity for eternity privileges like ruling over god's people responsibility some of you are like i don't want responsibility is that a good thing it is. In eternity, responsibility is a good thing. Proverbs nineteen seventeen says, Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and will be repaid in full. I'm here to tell you this morning that if we keep God's good commands, there's a reward for us in eternity. Jesus was not anti-reward. So there it is. We've, we've seen a story about a, a rich man who was uh, doing all the right things, or so he thought. He was doing at least many right things. He had, in his own estimation, earned his way to heaven, so to speak. Except there was this one thing that he, he couldn't do, or he wouldn't do. This one thing that he wouldn't let go of. <clears throat> See, he, he didn't have wealth. His wealth had him. And so Jesus invited him deeper into discipleship. But the man just can't let go. He's like Schmeagel, holding on to his ring, even at his own peril. And in the end, he does not do the one thing Jesus asked him 
to do. Remember, he came with a question, what must I do? Jesus presented him with an answer, you must do this one thing. And the man walked away sad. Have you noticed the similarities here in this teaching with Jesus warning to cut out your right eye if it causes you to sin? We're moving here towards application. So what are we going to do about what we just heard Jesus teach? There's two times in the book of Matthew that Jesus has used this really extreme language, right, with lust. If you even look at a woman lustfully, it's as if you've committed adultery with her. So Jesus said, in order to avoid that, you should be so extreme in fighting your sin that you'd be willing to pluck out your eye if it kept you from sinning, right? You remember this. Or like, man, that's gross. That's really extreme. Like, are you sure, Jesus? Isn't that what's happening here? Go and sell, not just like half of your possessions. You go and sell everything and give the money to the poor. Look, you guys, when we have an issue that's coming between us and life, we've got to wage war. We've got to have a violent approach. Cut it off. Gouge it out. Sell it all, Jesus says. The life you're investing in is not life. You've got to let go in order to have the life that you want. See, giving is good for the giver. Jesus never says in this passage, give to the poor so that they'll be brought out of poverty. He never says, give to the poor. He never, he couldn't, like he never says you could eradicate poverty, right? Sometimes we use stats like that. Well, you know, the one-tenth of the world's wealth could feed the entire world, right? Things like that. Jesus doesn't say that. Who's the giving good for? The giving's good for the giver. Giving away our wealth is war against our sin. It's war against our disordered worship. Giving is good for the giver. This morning, um, you know, this could be specific for you this morning. Like maybe you just know in your heart right now you've been holding on to money. You've been holding on to your material possessions. You've been working too much because you want to have something, a certain way of life or maybe a certain possession. Maybe that's specific for you this morning, and you know that God's just highlighting something. You're not letting go. This is why you're stressed out, because you're too worried about money, because money's your God, and you can't stop thinking about what will happen if you don't get this account right, or you don't please your boss, or if you don't work these extra hours. And maybe you're making the excuses, I'm, I'm trying to provide, I want my kids to have a good life. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe there's a specific application for your life, or maybe, maybe it's just a spiritual application for your life. Maybe it's also a spiritual application for your life today. What are you holding on to? Is it shame that you're holding on to? Is it the uh, approval of others that you're holding on to? If Jesus was sitting next to you right now, what would he, in his kindness, invite you to let go of? We're missing out on true life and holding on to life that we could never really hold. Jim Elliott, the, uh, the missionary, he said that he is no fool 
to give up what he cannot have in order to, I just had my mind go blank. That's never happened to me before. You're like, normally, Noel, you could just keep talking and talking and talking. Your mind actually went blank. Hey, it's not a foolish thing to do, to let go of something that you can't ultimately possess in order to have something that you think you can possess. Eternal life is available to you. Eternal life is available to me, and sometimes we, we hold on to things that do not produce life. And in so doing, we let go of the opportunity to actually have life, and that's the main teaching of this passage. There's life to be had in Jesus. We can have it, but it requires us to sell, to let go of it all. Let's pray. Hey, we're so glad you joined us, but don't forget to stay connected either through our website, our social media, or the Church Center app. Or you know what? Better yet, come join us in person on a Sunday morning. See you soon.